You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. In a case that threatens to undercut President Joe Biden's climate agenda, the Supreme Court considered the reach of the Environmental Protection Agency's power to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But there was less talk about climate change than about the contours of the so-called major questions doctrine, a doctrine the court relied on to block OSHA's vaccine or test mandates and the CDC's eviction moratorium. Justice Elena Kagan gave an example which Justice Amy Coney Barrett then picked up on. The agency has stepped far outside of what we think of as its appropriate uh, lane. Uh, You know, the FDA regulating tobacco, that sort of thing. Just like something that's like, what, the FDA regulates tobacco? You know, the FDA staying in its lane. What? The FDA can regulate tobacco. Or if you think about the eviction moratorium case from earlier this term, you know, it was what? The CDC can regulate the landlord-tenant relationship. Here, if we're thinking about EPA regulating greenhouse gases, well, there's a match between the regulation and the agency's wheelhouse, right? How confusing was it all? Justice Stephen Breyer, known for his crazy hypotheticals, jumped in to help Justice Samuel Alito with one of his hypotheticals for attorney Beth Brinkman, something Justice Kagan joked about. Maybe it's not a good hypothetical. I think he's saying, do you mind if I... Yeah. uh, Look, uh, in tobacco, Mm -hmm. I suppose they started off in saying, we are regulating the advertising of Four-foot cigars smoke through hokas. Okay? Now, the, the problem is, can you regulate tobacco? And if you can regulate tobacco, that's a very big deal. But they say, no, it isn't. It's just this tiny, you know, there aren't, there are only three in the whole country. So it's a little deal. So it isn't the major question doctrine. You know, that helped me, Your Honor. And Justice Alito, I really don't mean to be not answering your question. 
Well, I won't. I won't belabor it, and I, I can never equal my uh, my colleagues' uh, evocative hypotheticals. You know, it's not always the case, Ms. Brinkman, that a lawyer responds to one of Justice Breyer's hypotheticals by saying, that's really helpful. (laughs) Laughter from those who know Justice Breyer's hypotheticals well. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor of environmental law at Vermont Law School. Pat, what's at stake in this case? When you're talking about the electricity sector, that represents about a third of our total greenhouse gas emissions. So it's incredibly important to regulate that sector and get those emissions down. And within that sector, you know, the single most important category, of course, is coal-fired power plants. So this case, West Virginia versus EPA, no surprise, West Virginia being a huge coal state still, even though coal is dying there, it's all about whether EPA has authority to impose the kinds of controls, well, a system of controls, that will significantly bring those plants into compliance with the Clean Air Act and with President Biden's avowed pledge to make the electricity sector carbon-free by 2035. So there's a lot riding on this. And beyond the greenhouse gas and the climate change implications of the case, depending on what the court does, it may sweep even more broadly. It may affect all of environmental law. So Republican-led states, and as you mentioned, coal companies, are trying to head off an EPA rule that isn't even on the books yet? That's right. Originally, the Obama administration proposed something called the Clean Power Plan, and it had three different components. It was going to make plants more efficient, it was going to require more reliance on natural gas plants, and it was going to require bringing on green energy, wind and solar more quickly. That plan never took effect. The Supreme Court put a stay on it before any court had even ruled on whether it was legal or not, and it never went into effect. And then subsequently, of course, the Trump administration proposed something called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which it wasn't. But that rule would have only achieved maybe, maybe 1% reduction in these emissions. So it was a meaningless rule. The D.C. Circuit Court vacated the Trump rule and sort of reinstated or at least gave EPA the option of reinstating the clean power plan. EPA quickly said, we have no intention of reinstating the clean power plan. We're certainly not going to keep the affordable clean energy rule on the books. We're going to start a new rulemaking. And that's where they are today. They promised the court, EPA did, that a new rule is forthcoming, right? (laughs) You know, it's in the mail, sort of government promised. But no, they did say they anticipate promulgating a new rule before the end of the year. So you're right. At the current time, there is no rule on the books. Nobody is required to do anything, which, of course, raises the question, why in the world did the court take the case? That was my question. There's no case or controversy, is there? Not to my way of thinking, but the majority of the court disagrees. They're clinging to the idea that because EPA didn't officially repeal the Clean Power Plan, it could spring back to life. That was a term that was used at some point. So that's the slender thread that the Supreme Court is using to say this case is still a live controversy. It really isn't. That's a fiction. But they're sticking to it. The majority, the conservative majority of the court is saying, we think we still have jurisdiction. And we're going to issue a ruling. Now the question is, what's that ruling going to be? 
So the Biden administration backing the EPA, and they have backing from environmental groups and power companies like Consolidated Edison, Exelon, and National Grid USA. Why is the power sector nervous about this? Yeah, because the power sector likes the idea of having flexible options to achieve the reductions, including things like emissions trading. Of course, the power industry has been the subject of emissions trading ever since the acid rain control program from 1990. So the industry groups are savvy. They understand that with that kind of a program, they can figure out how to achieve emission reductions at the lowest cost. And they're afraid that the Supreme Court may go so far as to prohibit EPA from using emissions trading and averaging, because West Virginia's argument is all that EPA can do is impose controls at individual sources, one plant at a time, which is terribly inefficient and ineffective. It's not going to achieve the kind of reductions that are needed, but that's the whole point, right? I mean, what West Virginia wants is a rule that's so weak, it won't do anything. But the power company parties that joined with EPA are saying, we don't agree with that. We would much rather have EPA give us options, including, by the way, bringing on more wind and solar when that makes sense. So don't take things off the table, you know, don't necessarily force us to go green right away, but give us some options. That's what the companies want. The arguments were really long. Was there one issue that the justices were kicking around most? Yes, that's the major question doctrine. You know, the court has already used that twice this year. They struck down a rule putting a moratorium on evictions because of the COVID epidemic. And they said that the agency didn't have the authority because that was something the agency had never done before. And in another case, OSHA, the agency that regulates occupational exposure and health and safety concerns, also imposed a rule, and the court struck that down, saying, OSHA, you're not the health agency. You can't be writing a rule that regulates people's exposure to COVID in the workplace. You can regulate, you know, the strength of ladders that people climb in performance of their duties, but you can't regulate the fact that they might be exposed to a deadly disease. You know, so the court has already shown that it wants to wield this major question doctrine in a way that strikes down agency rules that the court, the conservative members of the court believe are going too far, having major impacts on the nation's economy and so forth. But it's a rule they made up. You know, it doesn't come from the Constitution. And it's fairly recent. It's just within this era of the people that have joined the courts, Justice Roberts, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, now Justice Barrett, and formerly Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, they're all of the same mind about limiting agency authority. The so-called administrative state, is that what this is about? That's what this is about. I mean, the court would never use that term, but that's what it's about. It's a suspicion that agencies who are, quote, unelected bureaucrats, you know, taking, irrigating a lot of power, and they don't like that. The conservatives believe, I think, that those are things that Congress should be doing. And I suppose in a perfect world, that's right. But what happens when Congress isn't doing that, which is exactly where we are today? So the major question doctrine is supposed to kick the issues back to Congress and force Congress to be more explicit about the authority that they're granting. Well, that sounds good, but we know that in environmental law, we have not seen updates to our major environmental laws like the Clean Air Act, like the Clean Water Act, like the Endangered Species Act, 
We haven't seen updates in decades, and there's no likelihood that we will. So this notion of, quote, kicking it back to Congress is illusory. What it really means is there won't be any rule and there won't be any protection. Did you see enough votes there to head off the EPA rule? No, no. I was hopeful that all of the members of the court, when they really focused on what they were being asked to do in light of the fact there is no rule to review, might reconsider having taken the case. But there was no indication they were going to do that. So I'm convinced they are going to write a decision. The real question is, what are they going to tell the EPA? I mean, the court is not a rulemaking body. I mean, the conservatives would be the first to say that's a violation of separation of powers. That's outside our lane. We're not supposed to write rules. We're supposed to review rules. So that's my question is, what exactly are they going to say? Are they going to tell the EPA, you can do these things, but not those things? And on what basis would they do that? They can't say EPA has no power to do anything because of Massachusetts versus EPA. They've already decided EPA has the authority. And they actually said EPA has the duty to regulate once EPA has found that these emissions pose a danger to public health and welfare, which EPA has. The Supreme Court had a chance to review the endangerment findings some time ago and decided not to do that. And then yet in another case, the AEP versus Connecticut case, the Supreme Court specifically cited the provision that's at issue in the West Virginia case as the source of EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants. So I think the court is sort of in a box. They've issued opinions saying EPA has a duty to regulate these emissions and and the specific provision from which to do that. And so now what are they going to say about it? They're going to say, well, well, now we're going to put some significant boundaries. There was an argument from West Virginia and from the coal industry parties that the rule should be you can't regulate beyond the fence line. And a lot of my colleagues, a lot of lawyers out there thought that might be the rationale that the court might grab and use. But there was a lot of skepticism towards that, even from Justice Thomas right off the bat saying, that rule doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't think they're going to be able to use something simplistic like you can't regulate beyond the fence line. But again, what exactly are they going to say? And we won't know until June. Explain that you can't regulate beyond the fence line, what that means on the ground. Yeah, what that would mean is you go to each individual plant and you try to determine what control, you know, the, the, the typical Clean Air Act controls are things like scrubbers, right? That's that's how we scrub out pollutants like mercury and other, you know, air pollutants um, or bag house filters, you know, another end of stack kind of control for greenhouse gases. That doesn't work. Bag houses don't work. Scrubbers don't work. That doesn't work. So the only thing you can do with carbon emissions is either capture them, right, and sequester them. You know, that's carbon capture and sequestration. That's incredibly expensive. I mean, that's the irony, actually, of of West Virginia's argument. If you take it to its logical extreme, it would mean every single coal-fired power plant out there would have to install incredibly expensive carbon capture and sequestration systems, not just one technology, an entire system. And that probably alone would put those plants out of business. So, you know, that kind of an argument of looking at the individual source and looking for 
sort of conventional technologies just really doesn't work for carbon. Um, what the Trump administration said you could do is improve the heat rate efficiency of the individual plants. In fact, that's the, what Trump said is all you can do. But the problem with that is if you make plants run more efficiently, guess what? They're going to run more and they're going to run longer. And that's going to put more emissions into the air long term. So that's a, a nonsensical, frankly, a strategy by itself. It might make sense in combination, right, with some other strategies to actually reduce emissions. But by itself, just improving the efficiency of these plants is not going to move the needle on carbon pollution. A lot of people were looking at the three newest justices to see, you know, what they said. But Justice Neil Gorsuch, I think, only asked one question. And Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett didn't ask that many questions in this long argument. But did Barrett seem to be considering sort of a middle ground position? Yes, I think I think if there's any hope here to retain some authority for EPA to write a meaningful rule. It lies with Chief Justice Roberts, and there's a good likelihood, actually, that he may write the opinion in this case, and with Justice Barrett, because, yes, she was cautious, and she didn't tip her hand at all about which way she was leaning, and she asked the kinds of questions of the petitioners, questions that would suggest she wasn't buying everything they were saying. Even Justice Kavanaugh, who, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, he heard arguments challenging the clean power plan, and he made it pretty clear he had very little use for the clean power plan and was prepared to use this major question doctrine to strike it down. But when he was asking questions, particularly of the lawyers arguing for the industry position, he was acknowledging that emissions trading and you know some of these more flexible approaches did make sense. And in some of his earlier opinions, you know, he's shown a keen interest in looking at the costs and benefits of various ways of regulating. So I think he's going to hesitate to join in an opinion that would take away that kind of authority for EPA to shape a more flexible rule. So there's enough, I think, play among the justices here that maybe EPA could come out of this case not with everything they would like to have, but with at least enough to write a decent rule. That's what we're hoping. Those of us who want to see us make some progress towards controlling carbon pollution are hoping the court will pause before it writes something that just strips EPA of any meaningful authority to do that. Did it seem as if, well, particularly Justice Alito, was against the EPA here? Yes. Justice Alito has been, you know, he was the same way with the Maui and Clean Water Act case. He dissented a long, long dissent. His dissent was longer than the majority opinion that Justice Breyer wrote, you know, um, re- saying that, yes, under certain circumstances, EPA can regulate discharges through groundwater that affect lakes and rivers and so forth. Alito said, no, they don't. They don't have that authority, period. So so Alito's questions were, were as typically, um, you know, a little bit over the top, because what Alito was saying, you know, if we if we grant EPA this broader authority that EPA wants, uh, where does it lead? Uh, I mean, does it lead to EPA regulating everybody's house uh, and telling everybody what kind of energy they can use? And that's ridiculous, right? But that is the way that Alito 
think about agency authority. He worries about the abuse of authority. That's where he always goes with his question. He sort of takes the extreme example of what a kind of renegade agency would do. You know, if we're not really careful in controlling their authority, they're likely to go overboard. That's where he was coming from. And the uh, liberal justices were supportive of the EPA. Sort of, but <laughs> I think they knew that they knew what the writing on the wall was. They didn't fight on what we call the justiciability question. There, there's all kinds of reasons why the court shouldn't take this case. For example, standing. You know, how many times do environmental groups groups get thrown out of court because they can't adequately prove standing? They can't prove how they're hurt by what the agency is doing or not doing. There's no hurt here at all, <laughs> okay? So nobody's being required to do anything, right? So you would have thought the liberal members of the court would have been hammering on the standing question. Nothing, almost nothing on that. In fact, Gorsuch was the only one to raise the standing question, and he didn't press it at all. Like you said, one question and he was done. So, no, the, you know, Justice Breyer actually surprising, well, maybe not surprising, but he's an administrative law professor, so he... He was quibbling over why EPA hadn't actually repealed the Clean Power Plan. They, you know, the, the EPA probably, in hindsight, should have done that, right, uh, and taken it off the board completely. Uh, but because by leaving it sort of out there, even though they have no intention of proceeding with it, it gave it gave the majority of the court, the conservatives on the court, uh, a handle on the case. And Breyer was 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 quizzing the Solicitor General on why didn't EPA just take the, that rule off the books? That was about all you got from the liberal side. Talk about the possibilities of a ruling here. You could have them dismiss the case. You could have them issue a narrow ruling, a broad ruling. What are the possibilities? They won't dismiss the case. That's pretty clear now. It does come down to a narrow or broad ruling, and it does come down to will they call out some things that would be permissible. For example, could they say, you know, e- EPA can consider a, a regulation that extends beyond the fence line, but not one that tries to restructure the country's energy system. You know, not one that that requires use of renewable energy. Not one that tries to regulate the way the grid system of the country works and dispatch you know, gas power or clean power, something like that. Those were things that the clean power plan included as options. They weren't necessarily mandates, but they were options. And it, it may be that the, the opinion in this case kind of goes through what the clean power plan was considering and knocks individual pieces of it out and then leaves it to EPA to decide what can it do once the court has said what it can't do. I still have trouble imagining how an opinion like that reads and how you would write it, but that's maybe what we'll see is, is kind of a, an opinion that limits EPA's uh, authority at the boundary, at the sort of the outer edge of its, of its potential authority, but leaves enough that EPA can figure out a rule that will make, do some good. Thanks for those insights, Pat. That's Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Our interest is to maintain the strongest unified economic impact campaign that, uh, uh, on Putin in, in all history. And I think we're well on the way to doing that. President Joe Biden says the West is determined to continue its economic assault on Russian President Vladimir Putin over his war in Ukraine. The latest round targets Russia's wealthiest oligarchs and their families with direct sanctions, adding to the ever-growing list of sanctions against Russia, all in the hope that financial pain will force Putin to end his war. The rush of sanctions means that lawyers' phones are ringing off the hook with calls from clients struggling to figure out how to deal with them. Joining me is someone who's been taking those calls, Chase Kanicki, a partner at Cleary Gottlieb. Start by telling us how significant the sanctions are in size and scope. So the sanctions that we've seen to date are somewhat unprecedented from a sanctions perspective in the sense of you know, a country with such economic ties with countries like the United States and the UK and the European Union being subject to this level and this amount of sanctions, largely targeting in many ways the Russian financial sector, including major Russian financial institutions, as well as most recently the Central Bank of Russia. And those sanctions from what we're hearing from clients and, and otherwise uh, hearing in the market are having the intended effect of really isolating Russia from an economic perspective. Chase, would you say this situation is different in that usually you have a slower ramp up of sanctions over time, but here you have several stages in a compressed period of time and more escalations are possible? 
Exactly, that's right. It used to be the case, you know, look at the programs that apply to countries like Iran and even North Korea and Cuba. Those countries are just completely off limits for U.S. persons. The U.S. government, at least in recent years, hasn't really been taking that kind of broader, comprehensive approach, but instead is imposing at least what I call sort of smart sanctions, narrowly tailored sanctions. You typically do see those in a more piecemeal way where, you know, a sanction will be imposed, the U.S. government will see whether that sanction is having the impact that they want it to, and then if it's not, an additional sanction might be imposed. But you're absolutely right. Here in the last week or so with the Russia sanctions program, it's just been a deluge of individual sanctions, but all kind of at the same time, and having to wrap your arms around exactly what all those mean and what's the landscape look like from various perspectives. It's not just U.S. sanctions, it's EU sanctions, it's U.K. sanctions. Countries around the world are imposing sanctions on Russia. And so it really is a multinational effort that you need to be thinking about when you're thinking about multinational companies engaging in transactions with Russia. Have the Treasury and Commerce Departments made it clear what the new restrictions are? In many ways, yes. There was a period of chaos you know, last week when the sanctions started to come out, primarily because they were coming out in a fast and unpredictable way. And I think it wasn't necessarily that the types of sanctions that were being imposed were difficult to understand. It was just the number and the sheer volume of them and making sure that folks were wrapping their arms around everything that applies. And I think now, you know, here we are a number of days after the first sanctions came into place. I think we're starting to get a better sense of what the landscape looks like. Like the landscape's starting to become much clearer with respect to the rules of the road, at least as they are today. And I think as new sanctions continue to be imposed, it's much easier to wrap your arms around how that particular sanction bolts onto, if you will, the existing sanctions programs and becomes quite frankly, just a piece of the sanctions pie. So clients, I think, are getting a little bit more comfortable with understanding exactly what the contours of the sanctions are, of course, all subject to change if new sanctions are imposed. Can you broadly describe the sanctions U.S. companies are dealing with? They sort of fall into two primary buckets, if you will. And one is there are a number of parties in Russia that have been subject to blocking sanctions, a number of Russian financial institutions, a number of Russian individuals. Those entities and individuals are off limits for U.S. companies as a general matter. And so U.S. companies need to understand the extent to which they have relationships or other exposure to those entities and individuals and take appropriate action. The second bucket are entities that are not subject to these so-called comprehensive blocking SDN sanctions but more limited, perhaps, debt and equity-related restrictions. And so U.S. companies are not prohibited from engaging in transactions with those entities, but they are prohibited from engaging in certain types of activities with those entities and making sure that what the U.S. company is doing doesn't cross over the line of, for example, providing new debt or equity to those entities. So what are your clients calling you about, or what are they most confused about? we do get questions all over the map. You know, some are easier than others. Some require judgment calls because there's just, you know, lack of clarity. There's potentially some uncertainty with respect to whether a particular activity is covered by sanctions. But we usually start with the basics. And the basics are along the lines of, well, what jurisdiction does this particular activity or this transaction fall under? If it falls under U.S. jurisdiction, for example, it involves a U.S. company or the transaction is going to be processed in U.S. dollars. Here's the set of rules that apply as of today. 
if the transaction doesn't involve U.S. jurisdiction, but it involves U.K. jurisdiction or EU jurisdiction, it's helping companies understand exactly what set of rules apply to them on a case-by-case basis. And then once we kind of have an understanding of what those particular rules that apply are, does this transaction or some party that's involved in the transaction trip any of these sanctions? And if so, what do we do about it? Is it a non-starter? Can we just not complete the transaction? Or are there ways the transaction can be completed that are undertaken in compliance with you know, the applicable sanctions regime? So a U.S. company that was in the process of making an acquisition in Russia or a joint venture with a company in Russia – does that have to stop or does it depend? It depends. If, if those transactions don't involve any sanctioned parties um, or if it does involve a sanctioned party, if the particular sanctions that apply to that party are not implicated by the transaction, there's no legal prohibition on continuing and pushing forward on those types of transactions. But what we've seen by and large with, in our experience with clients that were in those situations uh, for, you know, perhaps non-legal reasons, waiting to see how the situation unfolds to make sure that no additional sanctions could impact the transaction. We've seen a lot of uh, pullback, uh, people pressing pause on those transactions to wait to see how things shake out so that they can feel comfortable that if they do proceed forward with the transaction, that one, it's allowed under the current rules, and two, there won't be some drastic change in the rules uh, a week from now, two weeks from now, that could significantly change the ability to complete that transaction. What government agency, if any, is looking at the compliance with sanctions? So from a U.S. perspective, it's the U.S. Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control. That's the agency within the U.S. Treasury Department that's charged with implementing and enforcing these sanctions. Um, And so that's the entity that you would go before, for example, if you believe you may have violated sanctions, there's a possibility to disclose those sanctions to the U.S. government, and you get credit for doing so. Um, Other times, OFAC will otherwise become aware of potential activities that could potentially result in violations of sanctions and reach out to the parties to develop additional information. The interesting piece from a U.S. perspective is is it's just not thinking about, am I violating U.S. sanctions? The U.S. also has so-called secondary sanctions that it can impose, and these are sanctions that provide the U.S. government with the authority to impose sanctions on non-U.S. parties for engaging in activities wholly outside of U.S. jurisdiction if those activities are targeted under secondary sanctions. And there are a number of secondary sanctions authorities that apply to Russia, and so when we're advising non-U.S. companies, it's not just a matter of making sure that what they're doing is outside U.S. jurisdiction, but it's also advising on the extent to which there's secondary sanctions risk. For example, if there's a U.S. sanctioned party involved, that creates potential risk of secondary sanctions for engaging in transactions with that particular party, even if it's undertaken wholly outside of U.S. jurisdiction. If a company or a person violates sanctions, does the Justice Department ever go after them? Yes, there are potential civil penalties for sanctions violations. Typically, civil-related penalties are handled at OFAC, at the the Treasury agency level, but there also are potential criminal penalties for violations of sanctions. 
for you know willful conduct in those circumstances you would see the department of justice intervene when you're talking about potential criminal penalties but it sounds like what's happening now is a lot of confusion rather than willful Exactly. And these are, you know, unfortunately, the U.S. sanctions are strict liability laws. And so from a civil liability perspective, there's no intent required to violate sanctions. If you violate sanctions, you violate sanctions whether you intended to or not. And, you know, what we see oftentimes from OFAC's perspective is that, you know, they use their enforcement discretion uh, in those cases. So if it really is a, a situation where, you know, the party was really trying to just understand the sanctions was an inadvertent violation, but it's still nonetheless a violation, you may not see OFAC pursue a penalty action in that case, um, but may you know, decide to issue what we call a, a warning letter, for example, recognizing and acknowledging that a violation occurred, but not pursuing any sort of civil enforcement. All these questions mean a lot of legal work and lawyers like you being inundated with calls. <laughs> it means that my calendar is full of 30 to 60 minute calls back to back to back, starting early in the morning, going till late at night. If there are no more sanctions imposed, how long do you think before this becomes just a simple process for you and people start to understand what's going on? Or is that not going to happen for quite some time? Yeah, it's a good question. I was actually thinking about that earlier today and how long my life is going to be like this. <laughs> And I think, you know, if no more sanctions are imposed, you know, it's tough to, you know, definitely say for sure. But I would say within a matter of weeks, um, maybe a month, I think folks will, you know, I think the initial chaos will die down. Folks will have a good sense of at least how the sanctions apply to them um, and can move forward. And they will have done all their contingency planning um, and, and implemented the various measures that they've, you know, they've thought about implementing to mitigate or eliminate their risks. You know, so I, I don't think three months from now my, my schedule is going to be as full on Russia sanctions questions as it is today. But, you know, I think there's certainly going to be a number of additional weeks from here uh, where companies are still trying to wrap their arms around the extent to which these apply to them. Well, thanks for taking our call, Chase. That's Chase Kanicki of Cleary Gottlieb. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.